0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. One of the most exciting elements of our Year of the Zebra campaign is the launch of a brand new journal devoted to rare diseases from Elsevier. It's called RARE, and it will give researchers, healthcare professionals, policymakers, and the rare disease community open access to a scientific publication that covers all aspects of living with these disorders. I'm delighted to welcome the Editor-in-Chief of RARE, Dr. Vendi Van Zelst, to Rai's line. She is head of the Clinical Genetics Section at the Department of Human Genetics of the Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, and President of the Dutch Society of Clinical Genetics. Dr. Van Zeltz focuses on implementing new genetic diagnostic tools in daily clinical practice, especially in the field of rare and undiagnosed diseases. She's also the National Coordinator for the Designation of Centers of Expertise for Rare Diseases and one of the two Dutch representatives on the board of member states of the European Reference Networks for Rare Diseases at the European Commission. In addition to learning all about the new journal, we'll be asking her about what is happening in Europe to improve the quality of care for patients with rare diseases. And before we get started, I'd like to thank my Elsevier colleagues, Max Dumoulin, who first recommended Wendy, and Judith Escales, who's the publisher working with Wendy on the journal Rare. So thanks so much, Wendy, for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So I'd like to start first by learning more about your background. What got you interested in a career in medicine and then particularly genetics?
1: Well, I've always wanted to become a medical doctor since I was a young kid, actually, so I don't know anything else, and I wanted to work in hospital, and fortunately, I was lucky enough to become a medical doctor. And when I first was a medical doctor, I started to work as a a pediatric resident in a small regional hospital, uh, which was located near the Bible Belt area. So there were a lot of consanguineous couples over there. So I saw relatively many children with autosomal recessive diseases, and that's what really got me intrigued and motivated, actually, to become a clinical geneticist.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating and interesting. So there's a Bible Belt region in the Netherlands. That's I've learned something new right now, because obviously we know that term in the U.S., but I did not know that about the Netherlands. (laughs) So... You know, tell us a bit more about kind of how your career has evolved from then. You know, you're working at Radboud University Medical Center. What have you been focused on over the course of uh, your work there?
1: Yeah, well, before I got to the Radboud University Medical Center, I had my PhD in uh, Rotterdam, uh, the University Medical Center over there, which was a combination of pediatrics, oncology and genetics, And then I uh, got my training to become a clinical geneticist in Maastricht. That's in the southern part of the Netherlands. And after that, I started working at uh, Radboud University Medical Center, which is actually located in the eastern part of the Netherlands. And we have the largest genetics department uh, in the Netherlands. And I think also in Europe, actually. And we are very specialized in rare and complex diseases and combine academic medical care with education and research, of course, and collaborate on several levels, regional, national, international, with other experts in this field. And we closely work together with our genetic colleagues in Maastricht, in the southern part of of the Netherlands, as the Academic Alliance Genetics. We are actually quite known for our good quality of care in clinical genetic diagnostics and counselling, as well as personalized medicine and uh, reproductive uh, medicine. And our department consists of three sections, as we call it, genome medicine, genome diagnostics, and genome research. And as you said already, I'm uh, head of the genome medicine section and focus on early diagnostics in rare disease patients. And we do that by DNA-first programs, as we call them. That means that we aim to have a diagnostic-first strategy after referral to our university medical center to actually decrease the diagnostic odyssey that patients with rare diseases uh, experience. And we perform this strategy for multiple indications like developmental disorders, oncogenetics, or newborns admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit. And my own clinical experience is oncogenetics. So I mostly see patients with cancer that want to know if they have a tumor predisposition syndrome or, of course, healthy individuals that are aware of hereditary cancer in their family or have questions about the prevalence of cancer in their family and if it could be hereditary.
0: Yeah, wow. That's fascinating. And it's a very exciting time, I think, to be in genetics. Uh, a lot of our audience are current or, you know, future healthcare professionals and genetics touches all aspects. Even if somebody doesn't become a clinical geneticist like yourself, genetics will touch their practice of medicine and their research, especially now the accessibility to whole genome sequencing. I think Illumina earlier this year announced a $200 whole genome sequence. I'm just curious before we get into rare diseases. What do you think about this moment in clinical genetics? What gets you most excited as far as uh, the future for genetics?
1: Well, I think luckily uh, we have had a huge technology development and, and with whole genome sequencing, I think now we have the possibility to diagnose a lot more patients at a much more early stage if, well, the costs go down, of course, and still Two thousand dollars is a lot of money if you want to have it broadly into to uh, healthcare. Well, in the Netherlands, we're quite lucky. Actually, we have uh, our healthcare system is built on a solidarity principle, uh, which means that basic healthcare is reimbursed totally, and uh, genetics is included. So we are quite lucky actually that we can offer genome sequencing to our patients if they are referred to us
0: that's awesome that's great to hear and obviously the cost curve will keep going down so hopefully that'll, that'll become more accessible not just in europe and the u.s but all over the world so let's switch gears real quick to the journal uh, very exciting that you're editor-in-chief of rare uh, the open access journal for rare disorders first of all tell us about your journey becoming editor-in-chief of rare and then maybe kind of what you're hoping to achieve with the with the journal
1: Well, it's a quite uh, short journey, actually. (laughs) Max and Judith, as you mentioned already, reached out to me, well, I think just before Christmas last year and asked me if I would be interested to become editor-in-chief of this new journal. We were discussing why a new journal would be necessary and if it would be necessary and what chances we would have to promote this new journal in broad scientific field already. There are already a lot of genetic journals and also some rare disease journals with high impact, but you see that they're mainly focused on patients that are diagnosed already. So there's not much room anymore for uh, case reports or specific attention for patients without a diagnosis. And I think especially these patients would benefit by case reports with deep phenotyping, to recognize patterns. So I think there is room for a new journal, uh, especially if we would align with worldwide consortium actually like the Undiagnosed Diseases Network International. And we really want to have a clinical impact on uh, rare disease patients and not only a medical impact, but also on the well-being of these patients in daily life. And I think a lot will be necessary to get there actually. So we need the patient's voice, the patient journeys to find out what their needs are and what their challenges are they face every day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually what inspired not only the journal, but the Year of the Zebra concept in the first place was there's a lawyer in Switzerland named Philippe Pachter, who uh, you may know of or seen. We had him on the podcast uh, last year. And he has a daughter, Louisiane, who's five in Switzerland, who was born with Pierre-Robin sequence in a French hospital, though the Pierre-Robin Center of Excellence actually is in Germany. And so he's dealing with all these cross-border rare disease treatment issues that uh, you know he's still moving forward with. But he submitted a paper from a parent's perspective about Pierre-Robin sequence to Seminars in Fetal and Neonatal Medicine, which is one of the journals Elsevier publishes, which was not open access, and he wasn't able to get open access for his paper initially, so he emailed our CEO, Kumsal Bayezid, asking for the open access to be granted and the fee to be waived, which Kumsal more than happily did for him and other patients who want to submit to that those kind of journals. And then one of your um, country colleagues, Lydia Tax, on the Elsevier team, I don't know if you've run into her, but she was responsible for a lot of our open access work at Elsevier, including helping get this journal off the ground. Her daughter, by the way, is a medical student at Leiden University. So I don't know where you went to med school in the Netherlands, but she's going to be a physician in the Netherlands as well.
1: So yeah, I went to Rotterdam. That's really nearby, actually.
0: Yeah, no, great. Um, and so anyways, they're personally very interested in this. I know she is so... It's been a whole journey and the year of the zebra concept in large part started because a parent of a child with a rare disease wanted to publish exactly the type of article that you're describing you want to get in the journal rare. So how are you going about, you know, getting in front of people? I know we're obviously sending it out via our weekly newsletter, sending out to patient groups that we worked with. We worked with a bunch of them. Um, But what are some of the ways you want to get more submissions to rare and what are things our audience should know about uh, submitting to Rare, because, you know, many of the people who listen to this are researchers and clinicians who could be authors in and, and Rare.
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of attention, of course, needs to be raised about this new journal and what possibilities it, it gives the patients or the parents of patients to present their journey and describe the needs they have. And we're putting together a very broad and diverse editorial board, not only uh, diverse by background, medical specialists, but we also have patient advocates in our board, scientists from different backgrounds. We've invited an EMA regulator to join the board, uh, but also, of course, location. So we not only have, as usual, US or European or Australian professionals, but we have invited a lot of professionals from uh, Asia as well, Africa, Africa. We are searching for the southern part of america and hopefully that will help in just distributing the journal and uh, raise attention and awareness of the journal and of course your weekly videos by osmosis really are helpful i think to to raise awareness and attention in field of uh, rare diseases and very useful
0: thank you yeah i was actually just yesterday looking at the statistics for the year we're recording this just at the end of march in 2023. And so far this year alone, less than three months in, uh, the videos we've made on rare conditions have been seen 1.2 million times. And again, that's by not just, you know, medical students and practicing professionals, uh, but also patients and their family members, you see the comments. So my hope is anybody listening to this or watching those videos will uh, not just consume content, but consider being the creator of content and, and submitting to rare as well. So I'm glad to hear about also the diversity and inclusion that you're doing, because that's the other piece about rare conditions. You know, if you have a one in a million condition, right? In the U.S., we have 330 million people. So that uh, 330 million is the population size. So one in a million would be 330 people. But if you expand that globally to 8 billion people, we've got 8,000. And in order to advocate for policy changes or to do clinical trials with the high enough sample size, you need to start being able to reach more of these people uh, cross-border, which actually I think is a good transition to a question I had for you about your work in Europe, right? You've been involved with the European Commission. Do you want to talk to us a bit about that work as well, what the EU is doing and, or EC is doing to improve quality of care for rare patients?
1: Well, actually, in 2009, already, the European uh, Union came with a recommendation to improve the quality of care with uh, patients with rare diseases. That was actually uh, because of a request and a study Eurodis presented, the 12,000 Voices uh, study they presented to the European Union to show that... On average, patients with rare diseases need to visit over five medical specialists before they get a diagnosis. It takes them five to seven years before they are diagnosed, etc. So this really uh, came to attention then. And they stated that each European member state should make a national plan on rare diseases by 2014 and designate centers of expertise based on a set of European uh, criteria which were determined by a European expert group on rare diseases. And this group was represented by a variety of stakeholders, from policymakers to patient advocates, regulators, pharmaceutical companies, but also medical specialists, of course. So that was actually the start of policymaking in the field of rare diseases in in Europe. And in 2019 and 2020, there were some new discussions with a 200 or more, even a multidisciplinary panel of experts, which was assembled for the RARE 2023 projects, as it was called, and led to a set of new recommendations as a policy priority at European and national levels. And lots of topics were addressed, actually, and recommendations were made to be achieved by 2030, like data collection and utilization, accessibility and availability of orphan medical products and medical devices, basic clinical, translational and social research, diagnostics, of course, integrated social and holistic care, and patient partnerships and access to healthcare. With the designation of the Centers of Expertise, these European reference networks were started and these are virtual networks that involve these centers of expertise across Europe. They review, for instance, patient diagnosis and treatment and have virtual advisory boards of medical specialists across different disciplines, of course, and in this way, the medical expertise and knowledge travels rather than the patient, actually. So, you skip the cross-border issues in, in this case. And 24 thematic European reference networks uh, started and comprised over 1,000 centers of expertise located over 300 hospitals in all 27 member states. They made a five-year plan with aims and goals uh, to achieve. For instance, create more clinical guidelines, invest in research and innovation knowledge, and generate and share evidence and, and data and knowledge sharing by trainings and e-learnings. We're in the midst of an evaluation of these European reference networks, if they indeed achieved their goals and, and aims and how to move forward from this.
0: Yeah, no, that's incredible. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Uh, I've learned so much over the past year from not just you, what you just shared there, but Philippe talking about how the EU is different and certainly it could be a model for collaboration if it, if it works out well. Definitely more challenging than what we experience here in the United States, where the borders are strong and there's a big difference between New York and Texas as examples. But everyone speaks the same language and there's a bit more uh, ease, I think, of collaboration, especially with one federal government being able to set that criteria. You know, I know we're coming up on time. I want to be respectful of yours. So one question I have is, you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. You know, that's how we grew up. We teach complex medical subjects, not only to, as we said, medical students and now practicing professionals, but also patients and family members. If you could uh, snap your fingers and have osmosis produce any video, one or more videos or a course on some topic to some group of people, what would it be and why? What type of knowledge gap would you want us to fill?
1: Well, I can think of a few, actually. I think there's a lot unknown about clinical trials in rare diseases. So, what type of trials uh, should you design to move this forward? N of one trials or basket design trials, and to get more insight in uh, when to use what kind of design. So that would be an I think interesting topic. And the other thing is: last week I attended an international conference on rare diseases, and I heard a lot of patients and parents' stories. And I think that was really motivating, actually, to get more insight into what patients really need in their daily life and how to move science or research in that way, so to get more ideas and, and inventions. For instance, a father there uh, told about his son who had uh, absence seizures and therefore At poor school uh, performance because of the fact he missed a lot of information during his classes. So he ordered a wearable EEG and could see the readouts on his uh, phone and send it to the neurologist and asked the neurologist if he could make any sense out of this readout. So the neurologist said, yes, of course, I see absences over there. And then he actually uh, put this together with some real-time AI technology, and now His son wears a headband, which records his EEG, has his iPhone on his desk, and if he has an absence, then the iPhone will shine a light. So the teacher knows that he has an absence and he doesn't get the information. So he has to repeat it again when he's present. These kinds of things are really helpful in creating ideas from a different aspect and point of view for us.
0: That's awesome. That's a really great example. And again, kind of emblematic of what I've heard talking to rare disease parents and patients is how engaged they become and how innovative and creative they can be when they channel their uh, energies for turning this tragic thing this tragic diagnosis into something helpful, not only to them and their families, but anyone facing those conditions and frankly, other people, because I'm sure this type of technology could be used for not just this condition that this, this child has, but for other people. Sure. That's wonderful. Those are, that's a really good example. Two last questions. You know, you have this great background as a researcher and clinician uh, and policy advocate and now editor-in-chief of this journal. What is some advice you would give to our audience about approaching their careers?
1: Well, that's always uh, difficult to, to say, but I think what's really helpful is that you, you look for a topic or a focus that gives you energy. And if you're really engaged, if your heart is in it and you get a lot of energy, then it's, well, your topic and and your focus, and you should move forward in that direction. And of course, I think we have similar challenges, uh, limited finances, increasing demands on healthcare and also on healthcare professionals. But as long as you get enough energy from your work, I think that's really helpful. And um, I think you should take opportunities If they are presented to you, just try. And if you don't succeed, well, okay, don't be too hard on yourself. At least you tried and you learned.
0: That's wonderful advice, both of those things. And, you know, we talk about work-life balance a lot. And I, I agree that's important, but sometimes it doesn't feel like work, right? Like that. there's all these people who say that if something's giving you energy, if you're excited, if you're passionate about something, you can be working you know, 15 hours a day and it doesn't feel like work because you're grateful. You wake up excited about what you're going to be doing that day because you care about the patients or, you know, you're making an impact scientifically or whatever happens. So that's great advice. Last question. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that uh, you want to get across to our audience about Rare, about you, about clinical genetics or the EU?
1: I just want to invite everybody, everybody's welcome to have a look into Rare, what our aims and goals are and, and what we try to achieve. And if you have a voice and you want the audience to hear your voice, please submit a paper.
0: Awesome. Yeah, We'll definitely be linking out and we do every week on the Year of the Zebra newsletter. And I know there are a lot of people in our audience who are already excited about submitting. So thank you, Wendy, so much for not only taking the time to be with us on this podcast, but more importantly for your career uh, helping people in the rare disease community.
1: Thank you very much, Shif, and thanks for having me.
0: And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.